0: Welcome again to another episode of the Southwest Climate Podcast. Mike Crimmins.
1: Hey Zach, I really liked how you drew that out too. That was really nice. I'm, you know,
0: I'm practicing. You know, we're on okay. our like 110th episode here. I'm getting better. <laughs> they say it takes training. You know, I'm just, I'm just a slow learner. <laughs>
1: right. Uh, we're getting close to getting this right.
0: Well, it's good to see you uh, virtually. And hopefully... I know we're still
1: doing this over a year now. Still That's virtual. Right. And I I
0: feel like the end is nigh for virtual, which is really quite um, exciting. I know U of A is making preparations to be in person uh, for the fall semester. So yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. So I'm going to affectionately dub this the how bad is it drought report? What do you think about that?
1: I like it. I'm going to guess it's bad. (laughs) Did I I just scoop you?
0: Uh, No, I think that was... uh, rhetorical question. I think you need to answer. Mike, I'm recalling prior to the new year, we made some predictions about what we thought 2021 would look like. I could be misremembering and I probably made some really bad predictions, but I think I made one good one, which is that as we continually progressed from the winter to spring, we'd see an escalation of news Uh, stories about the direness of the drought. And uh, lo and behold, there's a number of headlines that have come out uh, over the last couple of months and, 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 and more recently. We're Uh,
1: geniuses. (laughs) Yeah, that was okay. Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) That wasn't a hard one to predict, Uh, but let me read a couple of, couple of the headlines. Okay. So this one's from Vox as a mega drought persists, new projections show a key Colorado river reservoir could sink to record low later this year. Okay. CBS News, Western U.S. may be entering the most severe drought in modern history. Another one, why the intense U.S. drought is now a mega drought. And a Washington Post article, amid a record dry April, a late week storm won't quell severe drought in California in the West. And those are just a few from a variety of different sources. So Yeah. So this is going to be the drought report. So um, let me take us through what I think we'll get to today, Mike, and feel free as you always do to, to rein us in here, but you know, the winter's over for the most part, like anything that comes now uh, forward is is more an oddity than, than, than anything. And, 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 you know, maybe there's some precip for us early next week Uh, that remains to be seen, probably not for Southern parts of Arizona, New Mexico, but for all intents and purposes, the winter is in the books. And so let's place the winner in a historical context. Uh, and then I thought it's, it's, it's worthy of us to interrogate this question of like, how bad has it been? You know, has it been a mega drought? Is it a mega drought? Uh, so let's go there. And then let, let's, let's end with some, some thoughts about the summer and what are some emerging impacts of, you know, the last two really dry and, and, and relatively warm uh, seasons. I like it. Nothing you want to add to that?
1: No, you're so prepared. I don't want to get in the way of that.
0: <laughs> okay. Before going there, I wanted to make a, um, a sort of advertisement here. And we, we talked a little bit about this at the end of our last podcast about a game that we're going to offer and do a trial of related to the Monsoon Fantasy. So I figured we'd start this time with this plug because uh, I just don't know how long people are going to stick around on this on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and plus, this is a little bit of optimism. What we want to do is we want to engage interested people in guesstimating what the monsoon will, monsoon precipitation will be at five different cities each month. And so basically what people are going to do, we're going to have this really cool web interface that are set up that you can log into. It'll be sort of like, you know, we just went through March Madness. We'll We'll have like a running tally. So you'll score points each month. Uh, based on how close your guesstimates fall to the actual precipitation and and you'll accumulate points. We may even have some prizes still working on that. Not sure if we're going to have funding or not, but um, at the very least, this will be a way for us to engage with interested people and see how good you guys are at uh, forecasting the monsoon. We're right now building this uh, infrastructure, the online platform, but if you don't want to miss being informed of, of how this is going to go and, 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 and creating a, a, a username and profile, then sign up for uh, uh newsletter. And we're going to, you know, we'll be talking about it here as we go forward and a few other outlets certainly will be making people aware of, of it through this Clemas' uh, uh, newsletter. So you can just search clemus which is actually Klimas, uh C-L-I-M-A-S. Um, so just search that, Google search that, and uh, you'll be able to find easily a way to sign up for a newsletter. So, so yeah, we'll we'll, we'll be coming back and, and giving more updates on this, but I just wanted to let people know it's going to be super cool, and we road tested it last uh, last year in a much more informal way, and and we're we're trying to make this um, a little bit more um, more gamified, if you will. So let's get to it, Mike. Uh, <laughs> the last month, <laughs> not not a whole heck of a lot to talk about. It's been roughly. 40 days since there's been measurable rainfall in the low desert and about a month for rain and snow in, in, and in, in northern parts of Arizona, New Mexico.
1: So has it been as quiet as that would suggest? It's been quite delightful if that's the right word. I mean, so, okay. So, and again, you remember from the last podcast, um, I used the term the best of the worst. i still kind of feel like that's kind of carrying through because we we're kind of predictably drying out. We're seeing not much precipitation, maybe a little bit from storm systems that have been passing by to Northern Arizona, and Northern New Mexico. We've been in a really active, um, weather pattern. It, you know, we haven't seen the precip with it, but we've had a lot of these storm systems moving by and, um, warming us up really, really briefly, but then cooling us down. So we've kind of had this roller coaster, which is really pretty common for April. And so that has brought a lot of the wind, but it's also kind of moderated the temperatures. So you just look at the last like 30 days or so, and the temps are, they were really warm early on in April, but if like looking at the last 30, 60 days or so, they're not, they're a little bit above average because of that, that brief warm stretch, but overall the temps have been moderate. So if it's not going to rain, I at least don't want it to be super hot. And you know, that, that heat can really exacerbate fire conditions. So I think that what we've seen over the last 30 days or 40 days or so has been pretty pretty run of the mill for what we'd expect this time of year, especially in the, the recent decades. And um I'm not complaining too much. Definitely would have wanted more precipitation, but again, not expecting much this spring.
0: So it, you mentioned that the temperatures haven't actually all been all that all that warm for the most no. part. I mean, if you look at March, for example, this is the most. I'm looking at the most recent month of data, so we're at the end of April here. So, but but just looking at March, pretty much below average for most of the most of Arizona and, and the western part of, of, of basically pretty much most of the West.
1: Yeah, I mean the Southwest proper. Like looking, I'm looking at the West Wide Drought Tracker maps, looking at January through March. So even the last couple of months, like you said, doesn't have the last couple of weeks. But Arizona, New Mexico are pretty close to normal. It's been a little bit cooler off to the east. And a lot of that was contaminated by the, um, really deep freeze event that occurred, happened earlier in the winter time. And then around, you know, Arizona kind of, you know, maybe leaning a little bit above average because of a couple of warmups, but again, temps have been moderate because we just haven't seen that really strong pronounced ridging that would bring in those temps in the spring and really heat us up early like we've seen in past springs just hasn't hasn't really manifested yet.
0: Yeah, and when you look across actually the west um and just going back to the rainfall picture, I mean, the the dry conditions are pretty much ubiquitous around the uh, around the west. I mean, there's a few places spot places that have above average here and there, but for the most part, you know, this is a region-wide last month of pretty low rainfall. You you don't really find yeah. You don't really find a coherent uh, region that has experienced a uh, greater rainfall. So was there just, what was, what was accounting for that? Were, th- were these, with were the storm system
1: just further North? Did they, they, they dropped down further to the East? Like it's been, you know, this, the storm track has been, it's been entering through the Pacific Northwest has been slightly wetter than average. Is that correct? It does not show up as that being the case in the last 30 days. So like in the last 90 days, the far Pacific Northwest was, parts of it were slightly above average. Okay. So yeah. So the last month, the storm track has been basically storm systems moving through the intermountain west, but they've been inland trajectory. So they just haven't had any moisture to work with. And that moisture source really decreases as you get Further and further into the spring, there's just very, you know, the, the storm systems themselves get slightly warmer, so they can't carry as much uh, moisture with them because you just you're you're um, getting more of that um, difference between um, relative, you know, the relative humidity basically goes down as the storms warm up with the same amount of moisture. It's easier to do when the storms are really cold, the middle of winter. It's easier to to make the precipitation. But as you get further into the, the spring, it warms up. And so those storms become less effective. The northern Rockies have seen a little bit more precipitation from these storms, but we're on the dry side of it. So we end up just getting the cool down and the uh, wind associated with those storms. Yeah. What's the lingering influence of the waning, waning La Nina there, Do you do you think? Yeah, maybe. And again, this is the thing that still going to have to go back and kind of look at this year and try to understand a little bit more. But some of that, I think we talked about this the last podcast, but the Encel blog had done a a couple of really nice posts on how unusual the La Nina pattern really really emerged across the Pacific uh, Ocean as far as circulation patterns. It didn't look canonical. It didn't look like the past events that we would have seen. So you can look at like the winter of uh, 2011 into the spring of 2011, really deep drought for sort of Texas, Great Plains, New Mexico reached into Arizona. Looking historically, that La Nina pattern looked very, very classic. You know, when you average a bunch of La Nina patterns, it looked very similar. And so it was a, a, you know, intense magnitude La Nina. We also had a, a moderate, you know, to strong La Nina event this past winter, but the way the atmosphere responded was really different. And so, we certainly got the dry part of it. And there probably is some part of the circulation pattern that matches it, but a lot of it didn't match. And so as it's been waning, we kind of see the same weather pattern we've seen for the last couple of months persist. They just, it's just gotten, it just even a touch drier because we did get some precip out of some events. And at least, you know, that one in January, that was a multi-day event, one in February, and then one in one in March. and Still the northern parts of the Four Corn, like the the Southwest proper, is still getting you know spits of rain here and there. But again, it's just not very wet.
0: So I remember last podcast we were talking about the the, the dryness, and you know it takes a couple of days. We usually do this on Thursday or Friday, so it takes a couple of days for the podcast to actually drop. And then I think if it wasn't last month, it was a month before that uh, it it dropped. When we were talking about all this dry. Uh, dry conditions and d- during a time in which it was it was raining, and so there is some indication, Mike, that that we may get some some relief. What's?
1: But it, I think you ruined it because you said it out loud. I mean, I think it's like if we would have just stuck with that, and you know, people didn't wash their cars, and or they did wash their car, that'll make it rain, right? I was was get that backwards, but <laughs> but yeah, I think maybe the fact that we we brought it out in the open, we've ruined it.
0: So the models are picking up on this. They've been actually. I think you were saying this they've been actually uh, declining in their what confidence or um the magnitude of the event particularly for the southern parts like for tucson area and and that sort of thing as you go up to northern arizona flagstaff area albuquerque the it seems like there's a a little bit more confidence in 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 rainfall is that is that more or less the so so in other words can we say that uh it's less likely that uh, by the time this pod drops that There'll be there'll have been a little bit of uh, late April relief in, in in southern Arizona, maybe some in, in the northern parts.
1: Yeah. I'm just trying I mean, to cover our
0: basis here.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No, they the models are um, notoriously optimistic at longer time scales, and especially in the springtime, you know, they'll they'll look they'll often show really wet events for parts of the Southwest and always super skeptical of them. And as you get closer and closer to the that, they usually dry out. And so I think that this one is probably gonna be on the same trajectory. It just, it kind of makes sense. It's just harder to pull off. And again, in a warming climate, it's harder to pull off these um, events unless there's a lot of really cold air intersecting with a decent moisture flow. And those are hard to come by. Um, and they're really hard to come by in late April as opposed to even early April
0: it's not going to change the picture.
1: No, it's not. This is not, there was no drought buster on the, on the, you know, the forecast scope for um, next week. You know, the the best it would do would be throw down a little bit of precip, increase the relative humidity, maybe temper uh, fire danger briefly, or at least give a break, you know, to to crews that are kind of positioning or maybe working on fires. That in its own right is, I think, beneficial but you know, quickly, what happens on the on the other side of these events is it warms really warms up quickly again.
0: Well, they also bring wind, so I mean, it, they bring the wind.
1: Yeah. So if you know, they don't, this, if this event has some clouds, some relative humidity, and a little bit of precip, that's a way different wind event than a a dry sunny wind event for a fire. So this fan is the, if you can get a flames. wind event, take this kind.
0: Yeah. So it's it it will come of no surprise to Listeners who regularly tune in, that we've kind of been trending in the in the trajectory of deep, severe drought, and you know, basically from December-ish, it, it maybe January, but probably in December, we were pretty confident that it it wasn't a matter of if we were going to be below average uh, rainfall for the winter; it was just a matter of how much. Yeah. So, so, so here it is putting this winter the last six months into some historical instrumental historical record. Uh, so this is over the October through March period does not account for April. Uh, like I said, in the beginning, uh, April has been for the basically dry everywhere. Maybe there's been, I think Mike, maybe there was a little bit in Cochise County and, and that sort of thing, but, but few and far between, uh, rain events for april but but anyway the, this picture for october to march shows that uh, oh i would say if i'm doing my eyeball spatial spatial average right now that something like 75% of arizona is in the the bottom 10th percentile and then the the, the other 30% is somewhere um you know it's it's in the it's in the the bottom 33rd percentile so the winter was again. It's it's not historical here, and you know I can actually put some numbers to this. So for Tucson, yeah. So let me give a uh, uh, different numbers here. This is a, a slightly different period. So this goes back to mid mid October, but actually incorporates uh, um, part of of uh, of April as well. And so if you look at Tucson, it's been it's been the seventh seventh percentile. Phoenix is 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 the ninth percentile part around Flagstaff, like Winslow area, fifth percentile. You look at like Las Cruces, the 22nd percentile, Albuquerque, the 13th percentile. So not historically dry, not like the driest, Mike, but this is not a, um, this is not a good picture anyway that you spin it in terms of the, the, the entire winter rainfall. So, okay. So let me, (laughs)
1: let me put my little, (laughs) my spin on this too, with just a couple of numbers here too. So the, I think you're spot on, Zach. And that's the thing is like, I was really worried that um, we would repeat some of our more recent drought periods that were La Nina driven. You know, I'm thinking of like 2018 was more recent. So, like, Flagstaff ended up getting in uh, the October through May period in 2018, Flagstaff got 5.7 inches, which is way below their their average which is about 13 inches for that october through may period they they have (laughs) 8.3 so it's that's like a couple inches better and they're they're probably better sitting than any part of the state what i'm sorry what was that what part of the state so that was flagstaff Mm -hmm. right you know and again we've had a couple of localized events that really kind of pounded flagstaff and again um, this is all contextualized within a terrible winter, right so i'm talking about This is bad, as Zach said, but it could have been worse. I guess what I keep coming back to, and like Albuquerque, October through May has is at about one point three inches right now, which is worse than twenty eighteen, where they got one point five, but it's better than (laughs) twenty thirteen. Right? You know, or you know, so it's like, yeah, we maybe maybe it doesn't matter that it's slightly better than some of those other terrible, terrible months, but it, it seems to me kind of important, but I, you know, I'm looking at like Tucson, which I think you mentioned here, 1.4 inches so far, October through May, which is just slightly worse than 2011, which really surprised me. You know, I thought, I thought 2011 was so much drier than this year and here we are. And this is on top of that record dry monsoon. So I think that those two things working together do make this kind of where you're going with this convo.
0: Yeah. Well, that I think is, we talked about this last podcast, like I think you use the words. It could have been worse, or, you know, yeah, not as bad as it could have been. But maybe it
1: doesn't matter at this point because it's so bad. Like, I mean, it was so bad. And then it was like this winter was really bad. And I still believe that the couple of precip events that we have gotten have taken the edge off of what could have been really, really bad and really nuked a lot of vegetation and maybe set us up for an even worse streamflow situation, which is terrible in its own right. Let me try to put this into even a longer historical record, because I think you can't decontextualize.
0: I mean, you can, you can just look at the winter, but the fact that it follows on the heels of the historically dry monsoon season adds, uh, adds an important part of this story. So if you combine those two, you know, we're looking at across Arizona in the lowest 10 percentile of the historical record with some areas experiencing its driest in the historical record. So if we include the monsoon, it's, it's a, it's an unprecedented or near unprecedented picture, you know, and the monsoon was worse than, 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 than the winter. I mean, you, you, you mentioned like, you know, I think what the winter Mike for Tucson is, you know, the third or, or, or fourth driest on record. I think that's like the sixth or seventh percentile because it's not a hundred years. I was curious, right? Like, so going back to the headlines that I read in the beginning, like, you know, that are referencing like mega drought, um, which we can talk about in a minute. But I I was curious, like how, how deep of a drought is this? Or how unprecedented are these back to back seasons? So fortunately, we have some of the best paleoclimatologists in the country at the University of Arizona who do some amazing work on uh, tree rings and other proxies to try to piece together precipitation that goes further back than just, you know, the last 70, 80 years where we have actual like rain gauges and thermometers. Um, so I asked uh, Kevin Antrokitis, who's in the geography de- department. he Shout looked- out, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, this was awesome. So there's this data set that um, has been created from something like 2,500 tree ring reconstructions. It's a it's a gridded data set that you know they do st- uh, fancy statistical tests to, to 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 create to reconstruct precipitation in both the winter and uh, summer seasons over the continental US that goes back basically to the common era, beginning of the common era. So to, so the, the the database, it's the North American Seasonal Precipitation Atlas has 2016 um, years in it, uh, again, from tree ring records. So he, he queried that and he wanted to know, okay, what was the frequency of, of just having a dry summer followed by a dry winter? So this is below average or below median uh, for a summer then followed by a winter. Um, and I, th- I think as you would expect, it's not that uncommon to have those uh, consecutive seasons, about 27% um, for this, the Southwest area experienced dry summer followed by dry winter. All right. So then, so we had basically a less than 10 percentile summer and a less than 10 percentile winter. So what were the chances in the last uh, 2016 years uh, or how many years in the last 2016 years did, the, did that occur? Dry summer, very dry summer, very dry winter. 1% of the time. So that's, and that's where we are. We're in that 1%. So by all, by these measures, um, you know in the historical record, Mike, like it's un- very uncommon and then if you go back Two thousand years—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, 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 it's very, very uncommon. Um, so that adds a little bit more context to, I think, what we just came out of.
1: Yeah. So Zach, I've got a—I—I I built a little tool online that I've shared with you, and I've—I've I've used it for sort of training on the standardized precipitation index. But I—I I can do a similar analysis. So I just—I queued up just to follow on what Kevin uh, presented there too. And so this is using gridded climate data prism. And, I, and it's available monthly from 1895 to present. And so I queued it up for just, I think what you did. So I, I chose July, August, September as the summertime, and I can calculate the SPI for that. And then I chose uh, January, February, March as winter, and I could choose some other timescales. But just to your point, um, in the historical record, based on this gridded data set, a very dry summer followed by a very dry winter has happened twice in that record. And the two years that happened were 1924 and 2001. Wow. Well, that's... So it's rare. I yeah. guess is what we're trying to say.
0: <laughs> Stumbling over words here. So that record that I was talking about, you know, the further back you go, maybe the more uncertainty you, you built in because there was just fewer triggering records. So if you subset the data from 1400 to the 20, uh, 2016, so a shorter record, 616 years uh, for this area... Yeah, the less less than ten percentile summer and less than ten percentile winter was sixteen years in uh, in that six hundred and, and, and seventeen years, which is basically two in a hundred, which is right. basically what you just came up with. So there's yeah. there's um, some consistency there. So we're not in uncharted territory, but we, for all intents and purposes, we might be. And if you add in like the the fact that it was likely much warmer um, over the last two. Uh, seasons than it was in the in, in in the periods that we're referring to in 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 the, in the way past. Then you know it is un- unprecedented in that sense.
1: Yeah, and I think that convergence of you know this is where the natural variability climate change kind of collide, and so we can have it like we're just talking about instances of these combinations of events that are very very rare in the historical record. At the same time that it's warming, so it's clearly warming and it is warming due to anthropogenic climate change and so that converging with this rare event makes the impacts all that makes them different than even some of the past events so you know like the 1924 event that I just talked about in that situation you'd expect there not to be you know probably impacts on vegetation and soil water stress and you know water resources that you'd expect that you'd see now.
0: So there's a there's a phasing here. It's a it's a dry dry. You know, most people in the literature talk about the sort of anti phasing dry wet wet dry sort of thing. But what would what are some of the controls on, on on and would there be anything that would sort of control a dry dry versus a wet dry sort
1: of pattern? Uh, so you're, is that a <laughs> is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> well, that's a real question, isn't it? It's a real question. <laughs> well, I mean, I think in the literature we've been picking at that and. There's there's a there's a hypothesis that's been out there in the literature and is you know um, been used that the summer monsoon season and the onset of it is controlled by uh, local land surface heating and so if you as the sun gets higher in the sky and you are trying to build the subtropical ridge north having dry soils and low snowpack allows the kind of the the synergy of having that warm landmass um help the subtropical ridge build in and then the opposite would be the case you know if there was a lot of soil moisture and a lot of snowpack that that would hinder the advancement of the um the subtropical ridge to the north and that subtropical ridge is really important for the onset of the monsoon and really sustaining and bringing on that precipitation so that's one that's an ant that's a that's a wet. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. I just that's a a wet the anti, dry. the anti-anti, right. Yes, that's right. So that's the anti People have talked about the anti-phasing quite. Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. So, so the, in the literature, and I think it kind of intuitively too, is that the dry, dry, wet, wet would have something to do with some larger scale forcing probably related to sea surface temperature anomalies. Right. So, so that's the phasing of ENSO, you know, La Nina, El Nino, It's impact on the atmospheric wave pattern and then how that then relates to not only producing precipitation or lack of in the sum in the wintertime, but then how that translates into the summer. And it's, it's not as clear to me and how that all sort of fits together. And in the literature, it's even a little bit murky as well.
0: Yeah, I think it is murky. So I was, I looked up this uh, cool study by an ex U of A graduate student that I actually went to graduate student with Dan Griffin. He put together this really cool paleoclimate reconstruction that we've talked about in the past, but, but using, but, but doing so um, for just the monsoon season. And then he coupled that with what had been done previously on the, on the winter season. And he, you know, he found that, um, and this, again, this is for, a, this is for antiphasing or opposing signs. So this would be wet and dry. Um, and he found that, um, that there, that, that, that these, the frequency of wet, dry is kind of randomly distributed through time. I mean, he doesn't talk about wet, wet or dry, dry explicitly, but it kind of makes me think that maybe it'd be the same thing if, if, if it's randomly distributed for wet, dry then maybe it's also a, sort of a random process going on with, with, with dry dry. I don't know. I'm just speculating here.
1: I don't know. No, I, on, on I think, I think that that's what, you know, what's been really helpful with some of the paleo climate studies is that it's, it's really dragged out past the contemporary record. And this is why it's always so helpful to have the paleo part of the conversation here is too, is that some of the things we're observing in more recent times may or may not be <laughs> all that unusual or stable mechanistically. Is, and if we don't understand what the mechanism is and it's statistical, then you've got a small sample and it may be, you know, just unusual with respect to the sort of longer term variability. And I think that that's probably what's going on. I mean, there's modeling studies like on the antiphasing, you know, um, if, you know, the wet, uh, winter leading to dry summer and vice versa that do suggest that that land surface, uh, heating is in effect. Um, But the tree rings, the paleoclimate study suggests that it's not, that it's more of an emergent property in the historical record. So then it's like, well, there's got to be some other mechanism at play here. And some of those studies on that paper, there's a couple other that you, we were talking about, Zach, that really do suggest that the, the larger scale circulation patterns that are being forced by tropical sea surface temperature variability are really important in this whole discussion. I think that's, probably right too.
0: So I was trying to get a beat on, you know, my, the monsoon fantasy game by, by then trying to figure out like, well, what's the monsoon uh, what's, what's the, 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 the the monsoon going to be like uh, this, this summer. So I had uh, Kevin also
1: run. Oh, uh, wait a minute. That's why (laughs) Ah, <laughs> oh, you just let it out, man. Well, no, no. I thought it was just sort of a collegial exchange of information and ideas and no, you're running a racket. That's what it's all about. <laughs> well, so I I only did
0: it for one one part of this, which is I was curious what the chances of a dry summer followed by a dry winter followed by a dry summer would be. Um and again, this is only for the last. Yeah, so this is for the full 2016 years. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if you can guess this. How many times in this uh, drought atlas or precipitation atlas do you think dry, dry, dry occurred? Less than 10 percentile. So this again would be a failed monsoon. I bet it's
1: happened like once. Happened more than once. Really? Yeah. Three times? It's happened more than three. I'll give it to you. 13. I don't, oh, 13 really?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's 0.6%. I mean, we're we're talking like real low um, real low chances here. So I don't know what that's that means. actually,
1: yeah, no, know that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, based on what we were talking about in, in some of the papers that we were just talking about as well, is that the, the runs of dries could certainly, they could even be hap- They could emerge by chance just in natural variability as well.
0: Yeah. And some of the bigger ones or, or some of the times that that occurred was in the 1600s, uh, which to come back to this word mega drought, Mike, that's where part of, I think the Um, mega drought story comes from. So in like the mid 1600s, there was a string of like eight consecutive seasons of really below. Well, these are in standard deviation units. So um, there was, yeah. So in the, in the 1600s, these are in standard deviation units, but there's five consecutive seasons actually that were below uh, one uh, standard deviation unit. So in the low What what would that be, Mike? That would be in the lower fortieth percentile. No, no, lower.
1: Uh, one standard deviation. Yeah, so lower,
0: lowest seventeenth percentile, right? Yeah, right. So that happened for five. No, six seasons consecutively. So, but that's where, you know, that's where part of this idea of mega drought. So to turn back to that idea, Mm -hmm. Mike, do you think we're in a mega drought?
1: No. I'm, well, okay, so so what the heck is a mega drought? Well, okay, so and I think this is kind of it depends on where you're at and what you're talking about. and so I I end up, you know, where I live is in all of these, I think shorter time scale variability, you know, and like in my work, I work with like farmers and ranchers and um, more on kind of landscape scale impacts, you know related to fire variability and that kind of stuff. And so I'm always thinking about seasonal, Precipitation as well, if it's showing up or not. And so you can look at drought at different timescales. And so, you know, we have to remember that a year ago, last winter was actually a decent winter for much of the Southwest, not everywhere and not perfect. And it wasn't, you know, a a smackdown wet. And in the last 10 years, we've had a handful of good monsoon seasons and, you know, clearly. Two poor ones in a row and a quite a bit of in you know, fairly a couple of decent winters as well. So it's, I'm always thinking about that seasonal variability. Right. Uh, and in the and if you kind of move that out to longer time window and you move that along, it's definitely been kind of bumping along below average. And so it, it kind of just depends on your time scale. So the water resources situation is going to reflect the slower time varying situation, which I think we're seeing playing out in the reservoirs. But we also have the shorter time scale variability that has been kind of going up and down. And so we have extremely acute short term drought conditions that are kind of on the longer term now because, you know, and again, this is what's short versus long. Maybe it's still short if we're thinking about basically 12 months now. 12 months of acute drought conditions is really what we've got. Because if you go move that 12 month window backwards, it improves. So right. to me, it's like, we have this longer term drought situation extending back to the 90s that on average is below average conditions that i think does stress stuff over time but we've had some rebounds in precipitation at shorter time scales which you know ecosystems and vegetation do respond to the caveat to all of this is that it's warmer so drought also has this sort of feedback with precipitation and soil moisture so it's just harder for precipitation to be effective under these warmer conditions.
0: But this term mega drought, I think, is oh. it's kind of an interesting term because it it is catchy enough. I mean, you saw in the or you you heard in the the headlines of some of those uh, news articles the the use of it. So it it it's it's gotten a lot of traction.
1: And I was just interested in its in its roots. Can I say one thing too before you move into that? Because I think what you're gonna say is really important, but I just wanna make sure I clarified. It could be a mega drought in terms of like looking at the paleo records, you've got this extended period where you on average is below average precipitation, even though you've got short-term rebounds and precipitation. But I think calling the current drought situation, the acute conditions, a mega drought is not quite right because it's acute short-term conditions that aren't part of, a you know, they there is. it's a seasonal drought. It's one seasonal drought crammed with another seasonal drought for the Southwest. Right parts of this, Other parts of the West, California is a completely different dynamic, and I don't want to lump us in with them.
0: That, that's partially where I was going to go. I mean, I think it's, um, first of all, the term is not precisely defined. I traced down the roots of the, the use of the term. As far as I can tell, it originated in people at U of A will know about this more than me, in part because two people from the University of Arizona actually, it was first mentioned in in their paper. So this is Connie Woodhouse and Jonathan Overpeck. Overpeck used to be here. He's now at University of Michigan. But in a 1998 paper, I believe this is the first mention of it. So I tried to track it down because I was just interested in, in like, well, how do we think about mega droughts and whether or not like, you know, right, the last two seasons, that people are insinuating is, is, is part of a mega drought is, is, is such a thing. And so let me give the, 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 the language from the paper in which it was first mentioned. These authors, Overpeck, or Woodhouse and Overpeck, state, quote, during the 13th and 16th centuries, there is evidence for two major droughts that likely significantly exceeded the severity, length, and spatial extent of 20th century droughts. The most recent of these quote unquote mega droughts occurred throughout the Western U.S. in the second part of the 16th century. So that was that second. uh, The point here is that basically a mega drought would be defined in relation to something that just exceeds the severity, length and extent of what we've experienced in the in the historical record. So. That can be construed in a lot of different ways, right? So what severity are we talking about? What length are we talking about? What, what's the spatial e- extent? I think all of this is ju- just to say that it's a, it's a word that um, I think has gained quite uh, a lot of traction in both in the sac- uh, academic literature, actually. There's been an increase in trends of the use of the word. I also did that quick analysis, but, but more so in, I think, the, the, the headlines, in part because it's pretty darn catchy
1: it's clearly in that early work, it's, it's long droughts on average, right? So, so you have to, you're thinking about something time varying and it's got to have some, it's a slower moving process and it's, a it's got longer extent, it's longer duration anyways. I guess that's what I'm, I'm struggling with is that, so the term mega I think is talking about the intensity and duration over long periods of time, which I think translates most readily in the Southwest to the water, you know, the relation. So it's like, what are other systems that are, that integrate climate over long time periods? It's typically water trees. I think at that, you know, which is why I think they kind of match up and they work well together, but we have this, these sort of fast varying elements of seasonal climate that are also important that are, you can have droughts come and go even in a mega drought, you know, that's at a longer time scale at these, you know, slower varying components of it. Um, So they both, you can be in drought and out of drought at the same time, depending on what you're timing about, talking about and what you're looking at. And so my other point here too, is that I think what's been confusing as part of this conversation is that we've now moved this temperature aspect into this, which is this, the concept of aridification, which I think is really useful and important. And I kind of come back to that droughts start and they end, you know, so those, those mega droughts in the past had beginnings and end based on those, those tree rings. But if we're now going to call drought conditions that are both precip anomalies, but also increasing temperatures, mega droughts, they're, they're not mega droughts anymore. They're permanent droughts because they're, we're in a, you know, it's getting warmer and so you have this aridification. So it also, I think confuses because decadal variability is expected to continue. As best as we know right now in climate projections, decadal variability will continue, which means that there are drought, extended drought periods and pluvials in our future, meaning that we could swing towards wetter conditions with more frequent El Nino activity under warmer conditions. So then, you know, if today, if now is a current mega drought with an extended drought period it it will have an end to it even under warmer conditions as long as we kind of tease those two things apart right yeah and the the,
0: the most recent pluvial that you were ex- mentioning is it, you know basically preceded the the really uh dry conditions in the early 2000s so we had a protracted period of actual like wetter conditions and a lot of the the reservoir systems were you know, at relatively high levels in comparison to now, and yeah, we've been in a, for the most part, a more persistently drier time in the last 20 years.
1: Yeah, so I use I use drought indices a lot. I mean, it's kind of the tools of the trade for me. And one of them I, I was talking about standardized precipitation index, just by itself, just precip. So it's not including temperature in it. You can use this at a multi-scalar window, and if if you use something like a five-year window and kind of move that. Across time, it dampens out all of the seasonal variability. We had, it shows up really, really nicely. There was a very very wet period in the 80s. And then the more recent drop period, which you just said, is about 20 years. Well, it was interesting. About 2015, which was the hyper-mega global Godzilla El Nino that I'm still sort of scarred by, it, it was a slightly wetter time for Arizona. Just slightly, not imperfect. And you started to see some of those longer-term drought metrics actually sort of rise up a little bit. And then we've we've fallen off on the other side of that with more recent La Nina activity, 2017, 2018, and then this past year. So, you know, we're kind of in this noisy part. And again, I'm not saying that drought's gonna end in the next two years, five years, or even 20 years. We just don't know. Like we don't know how to anticipate those transitions, but if it's a drought, it actually has to end, but it'll be trying to do that in warmer conditions which changes the water balance side of the equation. Right, and it also means-
0: Yeah, exactly. It also means that it'll be more arid in a, you could have an an arid period where the precipitation is relatively-
1: Plentiful, uh, right? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it'll it'll be a different system. So the way the water moves through, and this is where I just think we've got to really get our heads around what this looks like in the future You know, like this is where I feel research should really be kind of pounding on is like, what does what does like returning to some, you know, and again, we don't know when this will happen, but some higher level of precipitation under a warmer climate, you know, like how much less effective is it? Or is it, you know, like, you know, scaling with that? Well, so there's some measures of that where they
0: try to scale stream flow. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated, but try to scale stream flow based on you know temperature changes so what does one degree uh, an increase in one degree of global or regional temperature mean for uh, streamflow and boy I just read this paper it was in 2020 from science and I think it's like something like nobody quote me on this but it's, I think it's something like what eight nine percent of decline in stream flow yeah for- no
1: that that's the I think it was Millie. Yeah, was one of the authors, right. So but there's an there's an even more there's a whole litany of papers now they're building a Connie Woodhouse and her team just did a paper out this year, same sort of refinement. And it's, you know, it's, it's on the it's order of like high single digits to low teens scaling with a degree and this is deep de- decreases in stream flow in the Colorado River because of reduced snowpack. So right. I'm not, I also I want to make sure that I'm, I'm clear here that it doesn't mean we're going to have more water in the future as it gets wetter. I think it's just it's the opposite of that. The warm as it gets it, as it gets warmer as it gets warm. You know, as, with decadal variability, the expectation that we could phase into to a wetter period, you know, based on El Nino activity, doesn't. The, I think the the question is is that in some of this research is suggesting that the snowpack really suffers, so the water systems could would we'd even suffer in a future climate as well as it was wetter because you're not you're managing rain rather than snow. Right. So, I mean but I, but I'm thinking more on terms of like ecosystem response, local water resources, you know, those kinds of things. So it's it could be a really kind of snarled messy, you know, future with all of these sort of uncertainties.
0: No, there is certainly a lot of complicated nonlinear feedbacks associated with this, particularly with water because you are uh, stream flow because you know, your it's streamflow itself is filtered through another medium, which is you know the land surface. And when you're talking about precipitation, it's one thing. When you're talking about streamflow, it's it brings in a whole bunch of other important processes as well that are impacted both by precip and temperature. So there's a whole bunch of interactions that occur. But I, I think your point, just to emphasize it, is is a good one, which is that uh, yes, we will see relative periods in the future of higher rainfall and relative periods of lower rainfall. I think we can feel fairly confident in that right like climate is non-stationary and you know it and there is a, a lot of variability within it.
1: yeah um, and I think there's a there's a lot of uncertainty in the projections you know going forward you know there's that suggestion of it you know the mid- latitude jet retreating north and there's a lot of uncertainty in the enso side of this, but largely what you see with the, the climate projections in the southwest proper, is just this widening band of uncertainty rather than trend. You know, it doesn't trend up and it doesn't trend down. It just sort of, it just has like this wide band of uncertainty around no change, which to me suggests that like what you just said is that with that information, it's, you know, it suggests in the future that we'll have wet periods and dry periods, but it'll be a warmer climate. I mean, boy, I I mean, if you looked at the regions in the U.S.,
0: like is there a harder place to sort of project than the Southwest? Uh, for future. Uh, it's more than just rainfall. But, but to me, yeah. it seems like, you know, you, we're not just talking about, you know, wintertime, westerlies and and the in, impact of ENSO on those. We're also talking about the monsoon season, which delivers, you know, 50% of our rainfall. And and, 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 and boy, we've got a long way to go to, to feel pretty confident of that. And oh, by the way, that is also seemingly partially wrapped up in, in sea surface temperatures in the, in the Pacific, although maybe not to the extent that the winter is, but still, I mean, there's, there's two distinct seasons that have a whole bunch of uncertainty associated with it.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, some of these, this has been in the literature for a while and it's was emerging. It's merging more, you know, the Atlantic sea surface temperature in the, the uh, tropical Atlantic and the, well, in the, in the Atlantic have an impact on, they appear to have an impact on the monsoon season circulation as well. So it's like, we've got, I mean, it, the, the thing is so wired, together and snarled together, um, which I think what, which is why I think we have so much trouble because like you said, two different seasons, um, the seasonality of the precipitation, as well as the interannual variability component have made this a very noisy climate place, you know, for, you know, probably since the last ice age, you're seeing in the paleo work. And then now as it's changing, it makes it really hard to anticipate hydroclimate wise where we're, we're going, but it's getting warmer. That's the piece of information. It's like (laughs) we can, we can count on and how does how do we use that in a
0: noisy climate well i think that's a good point to end this segment on let's quickly turn to thinking about you know as we've contextualized the summer and and, and winter you know now we're entering into this you know traditionally you know hot and dry period before the monsoon ramps up this is our, our time of year where Um, You know, it's, it's, it's pretty windy, you know, fire, fire seasons at its reaches its apex right before uh, the monsoon comes in. Um, Obviously it's only going to get drier. um, And so, you know, drought conditions won't improve. Mike, what are we, what are we seeing so far um, from on the impact side of things that, uh, that, that you can speak to? Like what's the, we've had a few fires, but um, maybe, maybe, not so many yet, but, but we, we certainly expect that to be maybe
1: a, a characteristic of this upcoming, f- uh, for summer. No, there's definitely a concern and I, it's totally rightly placed. I think our whole, you know, the whole lead up of the, the sort of drought discussion and then the more recent wind activity. So that convergence, the, the Southwest, um, the, you know, national Inter- Inter- interagency fire center, seasonal fire outlook has all of the Southwest with, expectation for above average fire activity which you know is i think it's a pretty pretty safe forecast so just looking at the southwest coordination center website uh there are 555 year-to-date fires in arizona new mexico and that's 19,000 acres so it's you know that's a lot of little fires there was a fire where you know this is such an arizona thing or such a southwest thing where the gila riverbed caught on fire and um <laughs> burned very close to a town and i shouldn't over. be laughing um,
0: that's just funny the way no, you i know that. it's it's not the riverbed
1: yeah it's such a it's not a it's not it's not funny it's a very it's very because it was you know it, it burned down a bunch of structures in central arizona but it's yeah it's it's a very arizona thing because it's a water it's a river without water in it and a lot of i think it burned through tamarisk but they had they had, you know, large tankers on it very quickly. And then there was another fire in Southeast Arizona that's actually burning right now that they very quickly had large tankers on too. So there's a lot of pre-positioning and a lot of resources down here to kind of jump on stuff. It is April and um, it's windy. We've had a lot of red flag days and we've got these really dry conditions on the ground. I think the temps moderating a little bit of rain next week could really help tamp it down briefly, but you know, it really is sort of mid May to late May. And then that push between Memorial Day and the monsoon start, you know, Memorial Day is kind of traditionally a lot of fire starts happening right around then um, with people out camping and those kinds of things. So I think you mentioned this earlier, Zach, is that there's an expectation that we're probably going to see forest closures and fire restrictions to try to get ahead of um, the ramp up and, you know, human cause starts and in May and June, but we still have, a, we've got a pretty, we've got a long stretch here, you know, so it's April 23rd and two months from today, do you think it'll be humid and raining everywhere?
0: Boy, I hope so. I
1: do I do too. I do too. But I just like, I, I just remember too many May, June 23rds were that.
0: Oh, it's, was, it's, no. it's unlikely. Hopefully it's, there's signs that it's, uh it's on its way in terms of the fire season. I mean, some of this, some of the risk will depend on just how fast it warms up too.
1: Yeah. This windy stuff could be really problematic. You know, if the wind keeps going into May, that will be one thing to contend with and and deal with, which could be really problematic in the, you know, the flip is, is that we, the ridge starts to build in and we get into kind of more stagnant, but much hotter weather. So then you've got this situation where you have these sort of wind driven fires, like we saw with the wallow, fire, or you can have the ones that are plume dominated, like the Rodeo sky. And those are two kind of different weather conditions in the background, both not helpful for fires. And so there's a risk of both of those kind of going forward. Even
0: in a high risk, it's, you still need some ignitions and, you know, half the ignitions come from, you know, lightning. So
1: they do, but they don't typically occur till like, so the, the Bighorn fire, if you remember, it was really strange early June kind of stray storm, lightning strike that sparked off. And then it was just like poor timing. You know, like if it didn't, if it hadn't done anything, maybe that fire wouldn't have started. And then we had such little lightning later. It might've said, we might've just gotten through the season. Right. That was the Mount lemon
0: fire last year. Right? That's right.
1: Yeah. But like 20, I think it was 2017, 2018 deep La Nina. It was very dry fall winter. Uh, some of the driest for, I think like uh, some of the northern Arizona stations, but there were a ton of forest closures that spring. And the fire activity, I think, was really kept down because of a lot of those management decisions.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but f- fire uh, is one of those complicated systems that involve both people and and the environment. But there's no doubt that like a dryer, a drier period before is just sort of sets the stage for higher risk. It doesn't necessarily mean that that risk uh, will come to fruition. Like I said, like, I mean, it could just be that there's not as many uh, lightning strikes cloud to ground strikes this year as, as in the past. I mean, that's possible, but certainly uh, the, the, the stage is set, I guess, for elevated risk and we're seeing that in those, in, in, the, in those forecasts. So I'm sure that the, the, the fire folks are, are, are pretty keen right now about the, uh, the next couple months. Absolutely. Anything else like in terms of impacts? I mean, one thing that we didn't mention that I don't want to dwell on too much here, but I alluded to in reading some of the headlines in the beginning was, was just that the Colorado River, you know, for the first time is projected to be below sort of it's one of its like metrics for Lake Mead water levels at Lake Mead that then trigger what they call these shortage sharing agreements. So that's actually gained a lot of sort of headlines. We don't have to delve too much into that. But I, it is worth saying that, that, that the headlines relate to the, the, the forecast that were made in April that suggest that by June, the, the water levels in Lake Mead will fall below um, this important uh, elevation 1075, which is t- the meters above sea level, the, the water level elevation. But that really um, the key forecast is made in August Uh, And if the water levels are projected to be below that 1075 for January of 2022, that's what triggers um, the shortage sharing agreement. So that's all to say that that's going to be a story that's going to be evolving. Um, Nothing in the next few months are going to change that picture. Uh, What could change that picture is what the – people think or the uh, uh the forecast for next winter will look like and and we really can't get into that at the moment mike just in part because this is the time of year where it's the most difficult to forecast the uh the winter season it's called the spring predictability barrier that we've talked about before but um i did want to hit just before closing here mike the monsoon
1: forecast from the climate prediction center are, are are still a little bit bullish how do you feel about that I'm trying to, I'm trying to guard against wish casting because that's, I just feel, I feel, I feel like I want it to be true. I'm not being objective, I guess, at this point it for the second month in a row has shown above average, a a lean in the odds towards above average precipitation for July to September. I really hope that's true. I'm, I'm a little worried that it's maybe bullish. Yeah, I don't buy it, but I'm i <laughs> I guess that was a, that was yep. a long way of saying I'm not convinced yet either. I'm not convinced well, yet either. And
0: also, I mean, these forecasts, like there's slight shifts in the odds. So, you know, when you open the hood of of them, they're they're quite difficult products to use. I mean, but so aside from the numbers, they they are indicating some enhanced chances of probably an earlier onset of the monsoon, maybe related to the low snowpack that allows the monsoon ridge to sort of encroach further. But I, my feeling is that this is, there's not a lot of confidence around this, although it is surprising that for the second month in a row that these models are saying that. I'm just not confident that there is a ton of skill in the monsoon forecasting at this moment.
1: Yeah, the National Multimodel Ensemble has certainly the, the take on it this month is it's not particularly wet across the southwest, but it's dry across the Great Plains. It's got this sort of classic signature where if the Great Plains are and it really does, it speaks about the position of the subtropical ridge. If it's in a if it's if it's in a good spot for Arizona, it's typically dry for the Great Plains and kind of vice versa, which we kind of saw a little bit last year in the previous year. So so the models are suggesting the dynamical models are suggesting some good ridge placement for sort of northern Mexico. Southwest proper, at least average precipitation, which is certainly fine. I mean, I would happy. I'd be happy if that. I would be happy if that worked out. I'm. I like you said. I'm not totally sure. Um. Yeah. Let's and go with it. Yeah. I, I. That's just it. It's just like I feel like. I'm not right. I don't know okay. if I can emotionally take it though to get all hyped up for that and then to to have your your whole thing about four dry seasons in a row from the paleo records. Act that was crushing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, we'll we'll see who's optimistic for the monsoon fantasy.
1: You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll see who's pessimistic. You know where I'll be.
0: Yeah, and we and we'll see how how people's guesstimates change by the month. So yeah, yeah. Get ready. Really I'm, I'm, I'm excited.
1: I'm excited for that. I know. We should actually make people bet mid-May. I mean, that's a that's that's really getting out there.
0: <laughs> yeah, it will be interesting to see collectively how. So skillful is a term of art and forecasting, how skillful um, the collective forecasts are for the monsoon. Wouldn't it be cool? Just I think it would be really cool if there was, you know, some collective consciousness skill in, in these monsoon forecasts, maybe tapping into sort of a, some sort of deep-seated
1: geographical Knowledge, I don't know. (laughs) I just, I had the vision of the Matrix where everybody had that plug in the back of their head. That was—it sounded like some evil genius scheme that you were you're coming up with there, Zach.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to test that. (laughs) All right, Mike, I'm looking at my computer percentage here, and I'm at five.
1: I wondered why you set your camera off, so I expect (laughs) you better wrap it up there. Yeah. So, but that was good. I, I think we covered all the basis. Let's put these. This
0: last you know, 12 months of, um, failed monsoon followed by a pretty severely dry winter in, in the rear view mirror. And let's, um, you know, let's hope for a relatively mild for summer and then a booming monsoon.
1: Yeah. Safe, safe, no, no big wildfires. And then onward to the monsoon.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate the time and, uh, looking, looking forward to hanging out sometime soon in person.
1: All right. Put our glamour shots on the web too.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Exact. Um, I'm gonna have to hold for some. I got somebody at my
1: door. <laughs> I think we should leave this in. <laughs> A little bit of music here.
0: Thank you. <laughs> I have landscaping. Life Sorry. goes on. All right, let me let me back up really quickly.